thank you everyone for coming to join us today. We're very excited to um, share a wonderful story from our uh, Star Tour manager, Peter Ede. Um, just a little bit about him. He's been one of our most experienced and well sought after uh, tour managers. Um, over 15 years of doing Encore tours, he's led 34, I think, to date. Um, many of which are to Austria, which as you can imagine with its very rich um, composer history is a top destination for many, many encore um, trips. Um, so just a few housekeeping notes before we get started. I'm sure you're all very familiar with Zoom um, now. Uh, for the webinar, you can see us, but we actually can't see you. However, if you have any questions or things that you would like us to elaborate on, um, feel free to use the Q&A um, link at the bottom of your screens and we'll try to answer as many questions as we can. We are recording this today and um, it will be posted on our blog tomorrow. So if you have any friends or colleagues or students who you think might be interested in what you get to hear today, um, feel free to share it with them. We will be sending the link to you um, to your email address that you registered with um, afterwards. Um, so we hope you enjoy. Uh, without any further ado, I'd like to hand this over to Peter and we can all learn the curious history of Joseph Haydn's head. Okay. So Peter, over to you. So, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm just going to, hopefully now, do you all have a photograph of Haydn with his head attached to his body? Yes, excellent, good, okay. And without further ado, let's get into the story. I'd like you to imagine the scene. You're in a packed church in a tiny Austrian town. The president of Austria is there, the chancellor, various members of the cabinet, the head of the Catholic Church in Austria, Cardinal Initzer. Uh, the church is packed with foreign dignitaries, there are journalists, Everybody has come to lay to rest one of the greatest musical geniuses of all time. He is Joseph Haydn, the father of the symphony, friend of Mozart, tutor of Beethoven, but there's something which is a little bit odd, and that is he died 145 years ago. And the sculptor of the mausoleum in which his body is resting is standing up and he is holding in the air Haydn's skull. It is not attached to his body. So it's that story that we're going to get to the bottom of. Now then, Haydn is very closely connected to actually probably three cities, uh, Vienna, Eisenstadt and London, where he spent some time. Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about two of them, the Austrian ones. Let's talk a little bit about Vienna. And it's great because it gives me an opportunity to show you some lovely slides of the city as well. So Vienna is not the place that he's born. He's actually born in a little village, but he spends much of his youth in Vienna, spends a fair amount of time during his life, and he actually dies in Vienna. So just very quickly, let's run through, get a taste of Vienna, those of you who haven't been there. This is the Hofburg, the Imperial Winter Palace, where the Habsburg family lived in the centre of Vienna. Uh, here we've got a scene in um, Vienna uh, District 1, the centre of Vienna, which wouldn't have been that different to Haydn's time. Obviously a little bit cleaner than it would have been. Uh, 
probably those cars wouldn't have been there, but the carriages, the buildings, Haydn definitely would recognise that scene. Here we've got a lovely group of mine. This is outside one of the other palaces in Vienna. This is the uh, little summer residence of the Habsburg family, 1600 rooms, Schönbrunn Palace. Here we have a group of mine who were performing there, I think two years ago, that's in St. Stephen's Cathedral. Fantastic place, cathedral right in the center of town to uh, do concerts in as well. And then we've got a complete grown up. This is my friend Abby, who's also an ACIS Encore tour manager, standing in front of the, being a complete grown up, standing in front of the uh, Strauss Memorial, because of course Vienna is the city of music, attracted musicians for centuries. And it's the place that Haydn dies. We're now going to move to the end of May 1809. This is the house where Haydn retired to and it's the place where he died. It's a much less peaceful scene though. You have to imagine Vienna is actually being invaded at this time by the French. There are Napoleonic troops everywhere. The house is actually hit by cannonballs. And Napoleon, completely different era, there was a real honour in war still at this point. The Emperor Napoleon, he sends along a French officer to guard Haydn. Haydn is well known in his lifetime. He's a celebrity. And so the Emperor personally sends an officer along to look after Haydn, to make sure he's okay. Haydn at this point is 77 and he's pretty much on his last legs. So the officer, that's not him, uh, that's somebody pretending in wearing the right costume though, I managed to find that, of a French officer from the Napoleonic Wars. He turns up and he actually skillfully sings an aria from Haydn's creation, which no doubt would have tickled the composer pink. But he dies anyway, 31st of May, age 77, and outside there is complete chaos. So ordinarily, when somebody of Haydn's stature had died, uh, he may have been given basically a state funeral, with all the honours and you know, dignitaries turning up, but that didn't happen. There was a war on. So just the following day, the 1st of June, they bury him in a local cemetery without any fuss whatsoever. The plan is always, we're going to give him a proper burial. This is just going to be temporary a proper burial later. And in fact, his mentor and his former employer, Prince Esterhazy, he's a Hungarian prince, that is very much his plan. He says, we're going to do that, but in the meantime, we will have a memorial mass said for him. And they do that in the Schottenkirche. Two weeks later, the 15th of June, uh, they play Mozart's Requiem at it. And this is the inside of the church. You can still visit the church today. It's so popular uh, that they have to issue tickets for the memorial mass, standing room only. Uh, the church is full of French officers who, in the middle of the war, come along and attend this memorial mass for Haydn. What nobody realises, though, they think that Haydn is lying in his coffin, nice and peacefully, in that cemetery a couple of miles away. They're actually attending a mass at this point already from man with a severed head. Okay, so let's get to the bottom of that. For seven nights in that gap between his dying and the memorial mass two weeks later, for seven nights, his body lies undisturbed. It's the start of June, 
it's very, very hot. And on the eighth night, two men turn up, this is one of them, and they dig up the body. Who is he? He is actually Haydn's very close friend. He's a man called Rosenbaum, Josef Mode, Ro, uh, Rosenbaum. He's basically, he used to be the accountant to Prince Esterhazy, Haydn's employer. He's now working as a senior civil servant. He's a tax collector working for the emperor. The other man who turns up is a guy called Peters, and he is the governor of a prison in Lower Austria. So these are not exactly your common grave robbers who have come along. And what they do is they've actually, they attended the burial on the 1st of June, and they've come back, they've found the grave digger, they pay him a bribe, and they say, dig up the body for us. Okay, this is just a scene of grave robbing. It's a thing at the time. It's not actually Haydn being pulled out here, but this is literally what they would have done. They got hold of him by the shoulders. The grave digger knew which way round he was buried. They pulled out his body. It's the middle of the night. It's very, very hot. The body has been decomposing for seven days and they do the next thing all by candlelight. There are no street lights or anything like that. So imagine this. And without being too grim, or actually, why not? Let's be grim about it. What they have to do is they take a saw and they have to saw through his neck to remove his head. I'll come on to why they did this in a moment, but they want his head. So they take a saw, they have to go through all the tissue, they have to cut through the spinal cord. It's absolutely gruesome. On a hot summer's night by candlelight, they have to hack through everything to remove his head. They finally do that. By the way, we know that they did this because Rosenbaum wrote all about it in his diary. He gave an exact account of what he had done. Um, they get into a carriage and Rosenbaum writes, it smelt fearfully. His face was green, but still quite recognizable. Bear in mind, this is his friend's head. When it's placed on his lap, Rosenbaum throws up. He actually writes that he vomits. The reason it's green is that immediately after he started to die, there's bacteria in the gut and that travels up through the body. So his face is swollen and it's taken on this strange green colour. It's decomposed to the state of seven days. This is really quite grim. No wonder he threw up. And what they do, it's now early morning, they take the head, the complete head, along to the General Hospital in Vienna. Imagine that. It would be a little bit like turning up at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York with Madonna's freshly severed head. He was a celebrity, he was known. People knew what Haydn looked like. And they turn up, they give his head to the head surgeon and they say, could you please clean this up because we would like the skull. Okay, so the surgeon does it. He has to scoop everything out, remove the insides, the ears, the eyes, the hair. Apparently the brain was the thing that smelt the worst of all. And then he takes the skull, he puts it into a pot, just like this one. By the way, this is a Victorian cooking pot on sale on eBay for £395 at the moment, if anyone's interested. And they boiled the skull, the surgeon. He boiled it as you would chicken bones. Added some washing powder to it to bleach it. They boil it for about an hour, and at the end of it, they have a nice clean skull. 
and they take that away with them. Okay, Rosenbaum writes. If you've heard this story before, by the way, this is a real treat for you. You get to see the actual case. Rosenbaum writes, for the display of this head, I had a cabinet made out of black polished wood in the Roman style. On the top of it is a lyre. And I put the head on a silk cushion with velvet piping. He places it on his mantelpiece in his drawing room, pride of place. Now, all of this is actually, and I hope to explain why, not as strange as it might sound. I'll give you, it sounds a little bit strange at this point, but let's get to the motivation. When you normally hear this story, and I've done lots of research on this, looking at different ways this story is told, trying to piece it all together, trying to get the most accurate version of it I possibly can. The version that I first heard was that it was students of phrenology who had stolen the brain. What is phrenology? Phrenology, and by the way, I can tell you that is not correct. But phrenology, what was it? Phrenology was a basically a pseudoscience. It was thought of as a science initially, founded by a guy called Professor Gall. Vienna at this point is very much a centre of world medicine. And some of Gall's research still stands good today. Not all his work has been discredited, but his work on phrenology was discredited. What he was interested in was the shape of the skull. And what he said he had noticed is that particularly bright kids at school had large bulging eyes. And that fascinated him. He thought there was a connection between the shape of the skull and the look of the skull and the mind that was inside it. So he came up with this theory and he thought that different parts of the brain were responsible, for example, for different emotions. So this is all in German, but for example, number 27 is humour, number eight is courage, and we have a bit at the back which is peace. And he thought that various parts of the brain corresponded to various emotions. He also thought that geniuses had a different shaped brain entirely. And Peters, one of the two people who stole the skull, he does actually write in his journal, he notes that they found a bump on the top of the skull and they thought that's where the genius, the musical genius of Haydn was. But they were not students of phrenology. That's what you normally hear. These were guys in their 40, as I've mentioned, one of them is a tax collector, the other's governor of a prison. They're not students. These are grown up people. They just have an interest in phrenology as pretty much most people at the time would do. If I ask you, have you tried the Atkins diet? Have you tried intermittent fasting? Amongst our audience, probably half the people would. It's just something which is doing the rounds at the moment. So it was with phrenology back at this time. People were interested in the subject. It was a new theory, a new subject, and they were definitely interested, but that was not their primary motivation for stealing the skull. By the way, Professor Gall was expelled from Austria. He was discredited, the court of the Emperor Joseph II, that's Marie Antoinette's brother. He thought that this was immoral, it was wrong, it was dismissed as pseudoscience, and Gull went off to France, and then later to England, and that's where his theories were most popular, and they were used as a justification to subjugate people in the British Empire, in the colonies. 
it was said that the native people over there had different shaped skulls. There's this theory phrenology which proves that we are basically like the master race and we're allowed to dominate them because of the shape of their heads. There you go. In any case, let's get to the motivation. If it wasn't primarily phrenology, what was it? Let's go back to St. Thomas Aquinas. He dies in 1274, but he writes, it is natural that people should treasure what is associated with the dead, much like the personal effects of a relative. And he's talking specifically about relics. If you've ever visited a Baroque church in Europe, you will have seen things like this. A little bit weird to us, but all over the place, you will find things like, for example, this is in Munich, this is a bejeweled entire skeleton. But you will find fingers, you will find feet, you will find skulls, and they're open in cases. And the idea is very much what Aquinas is talking about. It was that you could go to a saint and you could pray. And just by being in the presence of the body of this deceased saint, it would allow you to be closer to them. You're not praying to the remains. You're praying to God, but you're seeking the intercession of the saint in doing so. So it's a physical way of being close to somebody who has gone. And that's a little bit what we're getting to. Now, you will say that's very different to his friend's head on his mantelpiece. Sure. But let's make another interesting little comparison. Today, in 2020, this is the Hard Rock Cafe in Vienna. And people go along there and they have autographs on the walls and they have costumes that pop stars have worn. And you might go there and you might see Prince's costume that he was in when he performed some concert and you'll think wow that's cool and what are you actually doing you're being close to celebrity you're being close to somebody who is dead you're seeking a reminder and in so doing it's conjuring up that person okay so you might say to me well there's a huge difference between someone's costume hanging on the wall and someone's head yeah sure but let's look at this i took this photograph in bruges in january uh, on one of our weekends, our Martin Luther King weekend. And we've got animal heads on the wall. And I'm a vegetarian, and actually that doesn't bother me. But what's that about? These are actual heads on the wall. And it's the food that's served up inside the restaurant. So again, 2020, maybe it's not that different. You'll say to me, well, these are animal heads. We're talking about a person's head. And I'll say to you, okay, I spotted this in the news, look. December 2019. This is my college in Cambridge. And our senior tutor said, our mummy needs more visitors. Her name is Hermione. What are we talking about here? We're talking about an actual body that's been scooped out, that's been dressed up, that's been wrapped in bandages. And the senior tutor of my college in 2019 is saying, come along and look at this dead body. And everyone thinks that's normal. So, you know, Perhaps it's not that strange after all. What they wanted was a reminder, a souvenir, if you like, of someone who was very famous, who also happened to be a close friend of his. It was a very prestigious thing to have. Okay, there the story might have ended. Except we need to fast forward 11 years, 1820. Everything has calmed down now. The Napoleonic Wars are over. Europe is at peace. And the prince 
had had a coffin made, Prince Esterhazy, this is his home in Eisenstadt, Esterhazy Palace, he had had a coffin made. He remembered that when everything settled down, I said I was going to bury Haydn, but then he forgot about it. The coffin waited for two years outside in a corridor at the back of the kitchen. It was just sitting there. But then an English royal comes to visit. It's the Duke of Cambridge, not Prince William, but the youngest son of then King George III, the last King of America, in fact, came along and he was friends with Princess Tahasi. He visits, visits him in Eisenstadt in his palace and over, oh, there's me visiting, by the way. If you look, those are the little guard huts there. I take my groups along there. Um, and over a glass, of the very well-known, excellent Esterhazy wine. They have a vineyard. The English Duke stands up and he makes a toast. He says, how lucky to have been the prince to have employed Haydn in his lifetime and who still owns him after his death. And this got the prince thinking. Here he is. Prince Nicholas II. By the way, everyone looks like George Washington at this time. <laughs> it's amazing. But this got him thinking, yeah, I am very proud. I was the last employer of Haydn. I've got that beautiful room, the Haydn room. I've actually, by the way, had groups perform inside here. You know, I should do, as I said, I should give him that burial, that big funeral that we said we were always going to do. So let's go along and we'll dig his body up. Appropriately enough, the date they choose is the 31st of October, Halloween, 1820. They go along to the cemetery, there's a chill in the air, the prince is actually standing there when they open the coffin. I would love to see their faces, because inside the coffin there is Haydn's skeleton, and where his head should be, they've just left a powdered wig. The head, the skull, is missing. He is absolutely furious, the prince. He immediately informs his friend, the Minister of Police. As Rosenbaum writes, all ferrets are set in motion. And immediately the suspicion turns to Rosenbaum. Let's put it this way, he hasn't been exactly discreet in keeping this skull. He's had a big box made for it. It actually has a plaque on there. It says, this is the head of Joseph Iden. So Discreet he wasn't, but he's tipped off. The police are coming round, they're going to do a search. They come, they do a search for the house, but they don't find the skull. And the reason is, his wife is lying in bed, claiming it's her time of the month, and she is lying on top of Haydn's skull in the bed. Can't have been the comfiest thing to do. I guess she had big skirts. And um, she was lying there hiding his skull. And that's the one thing that the police wouldn't do, was interrupt her. Bear in mind, the husband is quite a senior civil servant. You know, they're not going to do that. So they leave her alone and he manages to keep the skull. But still, they put pressure on him. They know if he isn't in his house, he's got it somewhere. So they say to him, come on, hand it over, give us back Haydn's skull. And he does. He hands over a skull. Immediately, though, they realise the skull that they've been given is the skull of a young man, a teenager. Can't possibly be Haydn. Haydn was 77. It looks completely wrong. So they say, no, 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 no. Give us actually Haydn's skull. So then he hands over 
another skull. Heaven knows how he gets hold of all these skulls. But anyway, it's an older man's skull. It could be Haydn's head. The whole thing is a little bit embarrassing for Prince Esterhazy. And so they have this skull buried with the body and the whole thing kind of drops away, although doubts remain. Rosenbaum doesn't keep it a secret that he's got the actual skull, he's still bringing it out, but Nicholas II, the prince, has other problems. He has money problems, basically he bankrupts his family, he dies in 1833, and so Rosenbaum gets to keep the skull. When Rosenbaum dies, he leaves it to his friend Peters, the, uh, the, the person who um, was his accomplice. Then it's passed on to another and another. And finally, in 1895, it ends up in the Musikverein, the Society of Friends of Music in the centre of Vienna. And there it lives in that case on top of a grand piano and it's brought out for visitors. We're now talking about really quite modern time, 1895 onwards. Okay. 1932. This is 200 years after the birth of Haydn. The then Prince Esterhazy says, we want to give him that funeral that we said we were always going to do. So he commissions this beautiful marble mausoleum to put the body and the skull in. But he will not put the body in there until he's got that skull from the Musikverein and the Musikverein refuses to hand it over. Their excuse is, it's now unlawful to remove human remains from outside the city to somewhere else. So they're absolutely refusing to let go of it in 1932. A lot then happens in Austrian history in the next 20 years. The big thing that happens, 1938, the Nazis march in and Austria is unified with Germany. I don't know if you remember this, this is actually a scene from The Sound of Music. Um, if you remember the way it's presented in The Sound of Music, it's all very somber, you have German troops marching across, there's nobody standing round, it's all very quiet and the Austrians all think this is a terrible thing. When they wanted to film this, this is just as an aside, when Hollywood wanted to film this, the people in Salzburg, it was only less than 20 years after the war had ended, they were very unhappy about swastikas being put up and troops marching through. They said, no, 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 we would rather you didn't do that. So the producers in Hollywood said, okay, we'll produce the original footage, the newsreels, and we'll just interject that in the movie. This is what it actually looked like. Oh, exactly. <laughs> People waving their hats, cheering, friendly Nazi soldiers. The Austrians welcomed them in with open arms. And of course, at this point, there would have been lots of faces in the crowd that would have been recognisable. So Salzburg said, OK, you can do your scene. Just don't put the original footage in. Thanks. By the way, another little aside, the Musikverein, the, uh, you'll probably know it, of course, for the New Year's concert. The very first New Year's concert was held on the 31st of December 1939 and it was to raise money for the Nazi winter relief program and to basically celebrate the Anschluss, the fact that Austria was now part of the Third Reich. Very, very Austrian indeed. In 1945, they just conveniently forgot about that and carried on holding it anyway. And it's now a musical fixture, a world musical fixture that you have the New Year's concert. It was actually a celebration of 
of the Nazi era when it started out. But as I say, they forgot about that. Okay, World War II ends. Austria, like Germany, is divided into four zones of occupation. So you've got a British section, an American section, a French section, and a Soviet section. Eisenstadt is down here in Burgenland, which is in the Soviet part. And over here, you've got Vienna. And Vienna was actually in four zones, same thing, it was shared, just like Berlin was. And then there was one central zone, which was a kind of um, area that was governed by all four powers together. And that's where the Musikverein was located. There are two stories that I found. One of them says that one of the last things that the Soviets did when they pulled out of Austria in 1955 was that they sent somebody along to the Musikverein and said, hand over Haydn's skull. We're giving that back to Eisenstadt. It's going to be buried. I've seen that story. This, by the way, is the Soviet memorial in the center of Vienna. I've also heard an interview with somebody from the Musikverein saying, no, 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 actually, we decided it was time to hand over Haydn's skull. But I can't quite understand why they were so opposed to it in 1932, but suddenly in 1954, it's okay. But in any case, what happens next can only happen with the consent of the Soviets, because the skull has to leave the Musikverein. Here it is, being held up in the air. And it has to go on a journey, a 30-mile journey to Eisenstadt. They actually take it in a hearse, just the skull, and it goes via his home village where he was born, and then it's taken to Eisenstadt. And there we have the whole weird ceremony, which is where I started off, saying, imagine the scene, the president, the chancellor, foreign dignitaries. This guy is the sculptor of that beautiful marble mausoleum holding Haydn's head up in the air. You've got the Hamburg Philharmonic playing the creation, Haydn's creation, and they lay the skull to rest, finally, with the body. She's standing there going, what the heck is going on here? And they lay it to rest with the body. But they also, weird little detail, leave the other skull in there. So almost like to keep him company or something. It is actually a trivial pursuit question, which composer is buried with two skulls? The answer is Joseph Haydn, although actually it's wrong, which I'll come on to in a moment. But they did certainly, at the time, put both skulls in there. Another weird little detail, there were three different colors of bones going on now. So we've got the skeleton is one color, We've got the skull of the other guy is a different colour. Apparently, the soil that you're buried in affects the coloration of the skull. And then we've got Haydn's skull, which, of course, has been boiled in bleach. So that's a completely different colour again. So we've got three different colours of bones going on inside the coffin. OK, you can go along to the Bergkirche. This is in Eisenstadt. I've taken many of my groups there. It's a fantastic church. The mausoleum is in this part. This back part, you've got Stations of the Cross, life-size Stations of the Cross, where you can walk up and right at the top, you have the resurrection. Here's one of my groups. We made the hike up to the top there. You have lovely views across to Hungary over there. Now, as I say, that Trivial Pursuit question, which composer has, is buried with two skulls? It was correct, 
and the Wikipedia entry was correct and it's now wrong until 2009. Because in 2009, which is the 200th anniversary of Haydn's death, they decided to take the skull out, the other skull, and to give it its own resting place. And there's a little memorial plaque. It's in the church just outside where Haydn is buried in his mausoleum. And this in German says, to remember that person whose name we do not know and whose head was buried with the mortal remains of Joseph Haydn from 1820 to 1854. In the Haydn year, 200th anniversary of his death. There it is. Okay. What would Haydn think of all this? Well, it's actually known that he had a tremendous sense of humour. Uh, as you probably know, the Surprise Symphony is designed to wake up a sleeping audience. The joke quartet finishes, all the instruments are laid down, and then the musicians pick them up again. He's having a joke on the audience. So maybe this whole thing, you know, he wouldn't have lost his head over it. That was a joke, by the way. He wouldn't have lost his head over it. Maybe this whole bizarre story actually uh, would have tickled him in a strange way. Very, very odd indeed, the story of Haydn's head. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. Thank, thank you so much, Peter. That is quite a story, quite a story. <laughs> Um, I have, uh, one question just popped up here. Um, Paul said that he may have missed the reason why there were two skulls. Um, I think, can we just recap that really quickly before? Yes, another one was handed over, um, because the person who'd stolen Haydn's skull wanted to keep onto the original. So a, a, a fake skull, and somebody else's skull was handed over. And that was then buried with him for 134 years. I have a question. I mean, you mentioned in the beginning that grave robbing was a, you know, they had a, a thing yeah. of it. Um, I, was it even legal? Like how, how did yes. that work? It seemed like a thing. <laughs> it, it's, it's actually really, really interesting because um, I, I'm actually a lawyer by profession. This is a fascinating little question. Um, there is no property in a body. Um, it's not a thing in law, certainly not in English law, like a painting or a car or, you know, a, a possession. You don't own your body, you are your body when you're alive. So when you die, who, who gets your body? Who owns it? Imagine you've said in your will, I leave my estate to my widow and my two daughters. What, do they get a third each of your body? It, it, it's just not a thing. Your, your body is, is, is it, there are no property rights in a body, in, certainly in Anglo-Saxon law. I imagine it would have been very similar in Austrian law. So what we had to do in England, the only source of corpses for physicians, for medical research, which started really taking off in the 1800s, was actually people had been executed. And uh, there was a real demand to get hold of bodies. So what people did was they went along and they robbed fresh graves and then they sold the bodies to medical schools and they just bought them no questions asked um, and that wasn't a crime so what they had to do was they had to introduce specific legislation which said it's a crime to disturb mortal remains and that's still a crime in England you're not allowed to dig a body up 
but it's nothing to do with the possession of it. So arguably, them turning up at the hospital with Haydn's head under their arm and saying, wash this out, you know, that, that wouldn't have been a problem for the surgeon to have come up with because it's, you know, it doesn't belong to anyone. It's not Haydn's anymore, he's dead. You know, it's, it's just the thing. It's just, you know, a thing like air doesn't belong to anybody, sunshine doesn't belong to anybody, the skull didn't belong to anybody. So, weird. Now, I'm sure that's not the case in Austria anymore. I'm sure that they've introduced legislation, you know, which, well, I, I already mentioned about not moving human remains outside the city of Vienna. That obviously is a law now. Um, but, yeah, so, no. In... in um, Scotland, it became a real problem. In Edinburgh, it's quite famous that the, you have something made which is like a, a kind of lock round the coffin. Um, it's like a, a kind of iron um, grid that goes round the coffin and very wealthy people had them put round. I think it's called a mort lock and it's put round the coffin so that if somebody dug it up, it was all locked up and there was no way of getting inside the coffin. It's like an armour that you kind oh, of encase yeah. the coffin in. It was, a, it was a real, real issue, definitely. So when, when the police came to, you know, well, take the head from Rosenbaum. Don't forget that the police, you, you don't necessarily have the same standard of public behaviour. They're operating because the Minister of Police, who is the friend of Prince Esterhazy, has told them to go along there. So regardless of what the law is, they would just do that. They would just turn up and, you know, grab the thing whether it's a crime or not, you know. Was, that, yeah. was there ever any sort of punishment for Rosenbaum? Or nope, nope, he got away with it completely, died just, peacefully, left it in his will, yeah. Presumably left amazing. the case in the will with the, with the head inside, because, yeah, no one owns the head, but, yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting, um, I think, what you had to say about the, the phrenology as well, especially, you know, considering... The you know Nazis taking over several years later, um, yeah. was it was it considered a pseudoscience at the time, or was it still just something that well, it was, was it something that people took seriously as a? It was new and it was very exciting, and people thought that there was a lot of sense. I think that Professor Gull actually came up with the idea, and this was new. It sounds a bit weird, but that the mind is controlled by the brain rather than the heart because it was thought that the heart was the source of the emotions. And he actually said, no, it's the brain. That was new. So elements of his work were quite correct, but it was sufficient. It was considered sufficiently kind of pseudoscientific in Austria during his lifetime. He was actually expelled 10 years before all this happened. And he went off to revolutionary France and then he went to England. But his work got traction in England and it did in America, I know as well. And as I say, it was used to justify lots of really dodgy racial stuff. And as you say, the Nazis used this very much as well. They used to measure people's skulls and, you know, it wasn't phrenology as such, but they, it would definitely form part of, uh, you know, the, their pseudoscience about race. Um, does anybody else have any other questions? Feel free to type them in the question and answer section. Um, I mean, Peter, maybe people just have some questions about just uh, things happening right now. Um, you've been to Austria many times. Would you say that seeing the Haydn places are some of your favorites or is there other areas that you prefer? Yeah, I do love going to Eisenstadt. It feels very much, it's right on the Austrian border and it feels very much like 
sorry, on the Hungarian border. It feels very much like a Hungarian town. Um, there are low little houses and the skies, Hungary is very flat and the skies are very big in Hungary. And it feels like it's kind of huddled down below this enormous sky. Um, I do like it, but my favourite, my absolute favourite part of Austria is the area around Salzburg Mountains. So the start of The Sound of Music, which looks like it's a paid advert by the Austrian Tourist Board, it probably is. It's that area I absolutely adore. Uh, Salzburg itself is lovely, but get out into the mountains and it's, it's heaven. Really, really wonderful. I've done some lovely concerts in little churches there with choirs and things. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Nice, gorgeous landscape. Have you been able to travel anywhere recently or uh, no, you're I've, based in the UK if anybody I'm based, is not here? Yeah. Based in the UK, I've stayed in the UK to date. I have had friends who have gone from here. Um, actually travel is becoming quite normalised in Europe again. So people are moving to and fro quite regularly. Um, we've now got an issue in England that we have a very crude quarantine policy that adding countries, taking them off uh, with very little notice and then you have to quarantine for 14 days. But the sanctions on paper are quite serious, like a thousand pound fine. But I think that not one person has been fined yet. So how seriously people are taking that. But it is putting people off going to places at, at very short notice. I gather Switzerland's about to be the next one. Um, that's added to it and then others come off it like Portugal has just come off it so it's it's meant to be dynamic with the cases going up the criticism of it is Germany is doing the same thing but they're doing it much more intelligently they're doing for example there was an outbreak of Covid in Antwerp so they say anyone who's been to Antwerp has to um, quarantine they're not saying the whole of Belgium whereas we are saying yeah. the whole of Spain just because there's an outbreak in Barcelona and actually the islands are perfectly safe, lower rate than we have here. But if you've been there, yes, you have to quarantine 14 days as well. So it, it's, it's all working itself out. Yeah. 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 They're trying to do the more simplistic answer, but it's, it's making it more complicated. Yeah. Probably yeah, at the yeah. End. Other countries are taking a much more intelligent kind of uh, approach to it, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, Possibly, possibly the same from here as well, too. <laughs> um, well, I, I myself haven't actually been to Austria. I Unfortunately, I'm still learning very much about Haydn myself. How do you think that he, um, in Austria, is viewed compared to other icons such as Mozart or Beethoven or Schubert, you know, that, that may have a little bit more of a famous name outside of the music industry? Um, like how, how do people in Austria feel Haydn as being one of their one of their own? Like, I think he's absolutely one of, one of the greats. There's no no question. He may not have the as you say the same popular recognition abroad, but the Austrians tend to be real connoisseurs of music, and um, they are very very proud of him as the father of the symphony and as being this this figure who who shaped how you know music developed basically. Um, so yes, I, th I think they are very, very proud of him indeed, actually. Um, and of course he's Austrian. The joke that the Austrians have is about Hitler and Beethoven. Um, we gave you Hitler, meaning that everyone thinks in, that Hitler was German and you gave us Beethoven. Uh, because Beethoven was actually German from Bonn, but he came and lived in Austria and everyone thinks that he's Austrian. Um, whereas Haydn is actually genuinely Austrian, Austrian-born. Mozart isn't. Mozart was a Salzburg citizen and Salzburg, when he was born, was not part of Austria. 
He was a Salzburger, not an Austrian. He then went on to live in Vienna, of course, but he remained a Salzburg citizen. So, yeah, Haydn is a big one who is most definitely 100% Austrian, no questions asked. So, yeah, they're very proud of him. <laughs> very proud of him. Um, do you think that it was, uh, you know, a, tr a traditional way of um, burying somebody like Haydn at the time? Like, um, was this the normal process for artists? Or do you think it was specifically just because of his clout um, and stature as like a composer um, or friend actually of, of yes, the prince I, as well? That I think there was an element of showing off um, the fact that he, you know, the prince had mentored him, had employed him. It was a tremendously prestigious thing to have had someone of his stature working for him. I think that's why the element is showing off. And you can compare it to Mozart, who, of course, was buried in an unmarked grave. Even though Mozart was recognised as being a great in his lifetime, nonetheless, you know, he, he was just buried without um, any kind of ceremony at all. Uh, no, nobody knows. We, we know the cemetery. We don't know exactly where he's buried inside it. Um, so I think Haydn was a special case, and that was because of the princely connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there is there any other questions that anyone might have? Uh, I just see from Charlotte. She says, "Thank you, Peter. I'm reminded that you were such a great storyteller." <laughs> uh, Charlotte Hartness, you, I'm sure you remember from <laughs> two, two wonderful sources, yeah, Charlotte. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we should have a little treat. We've got a little bit of um, Haydn to play, which appropriately enough is the Farewell Symphony. Uh, there's a lovely little story attached to that. It was that um, the princes of Esterhazy, they didn't just have that palace in Eisenstadt. They also had another huge palace, which is known as the Hungarian Versailles, Esterhaza, which is some distance away, um, certainly back at that time with the traveling. And all the musicians had been there with the prince and they were getting quite fed up. They wanted to go back home to Eisenstadt where they were based. And so Haydn wrote a symphony rather than dealing with their complaints and directly telling the prince, look, we want to go home. He wrote a symphony where everybody is playing and then it gets fewer and fewer and fewer and it ends up just with Haydn and one other person playing right at the end of it and it was a subtle hint it's the farewell symphony and so we have the first movement of the farewell symphony to say thank you oh, all very much for listening and goodbye well, thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for taking the time to do this for us. For everyone who joined us today, um, if you'd be interested, we also are going to have another event next week um, where we will be discussing Mac the Knife and the Wild Years of Berlin. Um, we'll send you an email with all the details for our next webinar, but uh, we hope you enjoyed our story today, and I hope you enjoy the music on our way out. And most of all, I hope we all get to travel again soon and see your lovely faces in person. So thank you so much. Amen.